Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We are back after a significant absence, but back we are nonetheless. Now, as I'm sure everyone's aware, the COVID-19 saga has a potential exit clause uh, in the form of a vaccine, which is the basis for uh, this podcast episode. Now, just as a disclaimer, nothing which is said in here is meant to be taken as explicit medical advice. All of the opinions expressed are my own based on my knowledge and my own experiences. Any medical decision which you do take should be in consultation with your personal physician. Now, without delaying things any longer, sit back, grab a coffee and enjoy the show. Vaccines, the most controversial word in medicine for a number of reasons, uh, some of which are valid and some of which are just quite honestly left field. But I know and I'm certain that you want to hear a couple of the left field ones. So let's address the elephant in the room first. Let's get these out of the way before getting into the meaty topics regarding vaccines and specifically the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's start with one of the interesting ones. This is 5G. So 5G is responsible for coronavirus. Now, the origin story would make any Marvel or DC Comics universe think, wow, man, this is class. So apparently what happened is in 2018, in The Hague, or Den Haag, in Netherlands, there was a death of 300 starlings. A moment silence for these starlings, please moment silence over now apparently these 300 starlings uh, died because they came into contact with or were flying in the vicinity of a 5g mast and they just all dropped dead now don't call me david attenborough you know don't call me steve Irwin, because i'm not but i swear there have been numerous instances of mass bird deaths you know, don't pigeons die en masse in some instances? I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a naturist or... No, naturist is the wrong word. I am not a man of nature. I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. But the point is, I'm not ecologically versed uh, to give an opinion on this. But there have been no, numerous instances in the past where groups of birds have died en masse in a particular given time. And reading more into it, uh, it's, a, it's a common theme. And furthermore, uh, around the time where these starlings supposedly did die, uh, there weren't any 5G tests being carried out in the Netherlands at that point in time. So, you know, uh, that that kind of puts that into puts that one to rest. But in, just in case you wanted any further uh, clarification surrounding that, the UK, being a developed nation, doesn't have the 5G infrastructure which you are even remotely talking about which would be able to cause this amount of devastation and disruption. We barely have 5G in any cities, and in the cities that do have it, the 5G coverage is questionable at best. So we'll put the 5G thing to one side. The next one, and this is this is a good one, is that we are all going to get microchipped uh, for surveillance purposes. Now, this one is... I mean, what can I even say? My friend... You literally do not need to get vaccinated for the purposes of surveillance. You know, if your privacy is of that paramount importance, then just think about how you're contributing and violating the downfall of your own privacy in the form of a £45 a month rolling contract 
unlimited calls, texts, data. Wow, what a deal. But the point is that phone that you have in your pocket knows more about you than any microchip ever will. You know, be it the holiday that you've booked, be it the content that you post on your social media, or indeed the confession which you make to your pastor on a Sunday. The point is that there's more than enough ammunition in your phone that renders a microchip pretty much useless. But I think let's let's go back to some kind of middle ground now. Uh, the concerns and the trepidation which people have with regards to vaccines isn't always necessarily misplaced. Okay, so when I recorded this podcast, I asked a few people before recording it, rather, I put out a poll or I put out a series of questions asking people what kind of content uh, they wanted me to address uh, regarding this COVID-19 vaccine and just vaccines in general. And the answers were telling in the sense that they could have been grouped within three broad overarching themes. So the first of which is fear of the vaccine itself. So this pertains to things such as safety, uh, efficacy, and so on. The second uh, theme is fear of the consequences of not being vaccinated. And the third is mistrust. Now, all of these, which I'm about to discuss, do have a significant and a valid basis. And I think I'm grateful, actually, to have had conversations with people uh, over the past few days which have opened my eyes up to topics which I did not necessarily consider uh, in the first instance. But let's just talk about this COVID-19 vaccine to start with and then we'll touch on those three uh, overarching themes. So unless you've been high for a year or living under a rock you'd know that COVID-19 has affected us severely. At the point of recording this there have been 51 million cases and 1.3 million uh, unfortunate deaths uh, due to this virus. You know, it's led to job losses on astronomical scales. It's led to an impact on people's physical and mental health. Um, You know, as someone I know says, we didn't evolve for all these thousands of years just to sit behind a computer screen and interact with one another. And that's true. Uh, Although video conferencing and virtual calls have been uh, hugely beneficial. Uh, Nothing can replace or compensate for human-to-human interaction. And that's just a fact. And finally, the economic impact, just just a brief uh, nod to it. So the expected hit to GDP globally is expected to be around 76.7 billion US dollars in a best case scenario. And in a worst case scenario, 346.98 billion dollars would have been lost from the global GDP as a result of the consequences and uh, surrounding circumstances due to COVID-19 this year. You know, further to this, uh, I was looking at the BBC's website and 98% of the countries in the world are expected to hit a recession uh, of varying degrees. Now, apparently the only two land masses in the whole world or on the planet Earth which are unaffected are the North and South Pole. So clearly our penguin and polar bear brethren are doing something right. So we should take a leaf out of their book. So that's where we stand in terms of the disruption and the destruction that COVID has caused. So you'd think that when a vaccine 
presents itself or is announced, that there will be copious amounts of joy, that there will be people singing on every hymn sheet saying, yes, please, let's have the vaccine. Let's get back to normality. Let's resume our lives. Let's live lives the way that we were used to for so many years. However, the reaction has been timid in some parts. It's been lukewarm. It hasn't necessarily been filled with such excitement. And there are a number of reasons for that. So let's touch on the fear of the vaccine itself. Now, where does this fear come from? This fear comes from a fear of personal safety. You know, how is it that other drugs, other treatments take years in the pipeline before that they're released? And now this has only taken 10 months from, uh, you know, from starting up the concept to being rolled out and produced. Understandably, that causes a little bit of concern for people. But let's just talk about the actual clinical trials process. So there are six phases. So you have preclinical. So this is when the drug treatment or a therapeutic intervention is tested on animals or in vitro, so in a Petri dish. And then you go on to phase zero. So phase zero is the first point in which this drug or treatment is administered to a group of human participants. It's administered in a sub-therapeutic dose, so it means that the amount that they're given is not enough to cause a response, but this is only enough to see the effect that the drug has on the body and that the body has on the drug. Then we go to phase one. So phase one is when you optimize the treatment, so you find the best dose. So it's a minimum clinically effective dose, which you know fits the purpose that it's intended for and causes the least side effect. Then we move it on to phase two. So this is where it's trialed on a larger group of people. We're talking maybe a couple of hundred at this point. Then we move on to phase three. And this phase is when the treatment or the intervention is trialed on groups exceeding a thousand in an ideal world. Then we've also got phase four. So phase four is once the drug has gone to market and is being used by the wider public, you get something is called post-marketing pharmacovigilance. So that drug is still being uh, analyzed. The side effects are still being reported from other individuals in society. And if it is deemed to be of significant harm to the public, then the drug is withdrawn. And that has happened on many instances in the past. Now, given what I've just described about different phases, it's evident to see that under normal circumstances, this process takes a number of years, not the 10 months or 11 months that we're talking about right now. So why why are we releasing this early or why are we putting forward a candidate for a COVID-19 vaccine in absence of the usual timeline? So in certain instances, this is acceptable. So this is acceptable under a provision known as emergency use authorization. So the concept behind emergency use authorization is that a drug or a treatment, a vaccine, an intervention can be licensed and can be manufactured and distributed to the public a lot sooner and quicker and in the absence of the usual time constraints if and only if it can be proven that there is a significant need for that treatment at a given time point in the population and the harm done to the public by not releasing and not producing this vaccine 
exceeds the harm caused by following the normal protocol. So in essence, if you know that you can save a lot of lives and you can have a positive benefit to patients at this point in time, then it'll be wrong of you to withhold that. And in the interest of safety and in the interest of uh, the public health, you should release the treatment sooner if you can and if it's proven safe. Now, so far from the limited and from the provisional data uh, that has been published by Pfizer and BioNTech, who are the producers of this COVID candidate, the results do seem promising. So the phase three clinical trial, which you know I just mentioned earlier, the phase three clinical trial had 43,538 participants enrolled in it, of which 38,955 received the second of two doses of a vaccine. And this is accurate of as of November the 8th. So this trial so far has shown there to be 90% efficacy. So it was effective in 90% of the population that received the vaccine and efficacy was dictated or determined by the presence of antibodies uh, after 28 days. And this was deemed to be sufficient. So now you're looking at it in terms of a global scale. 90% efficacy of 7 billion is around 6.3 billion people. So assuming everyone does receive a vaccine, 6.3 billion people worldwide would potentially have immunity to COVID-19. That's how they're looking at it. And in terms of the groups or the demographics, there was supposedly in this study uh, a mixture of racially and ethnically diverse backgrounds, both within the United States and globally. And the final point worth mentioning is that no serious adverse effects were noted throughout the time frame that they were carrying these uh, clinical trials. And safety and efficacy data is and is actively continuing to be collected. So initially things do seem promising, especially if this is reflective of how the vaccine would perform and be received on a global scale. However, I still do understand that people have their reservations at the fact that these conclusions were drawn and reached within the time frame of months as opposed to the conventional years. Although arguably, given the circumstances which we find ourselves in regarding COVID, do we actually have the luxury of waiting for years? And I personally believe that the answer to that is no, we don't. And the only reason that I say this is because you just have to look at the circumstances which we are in now. You know, I alluded to some of the statistics earlier, the deaths globally, the number of infected cases globally. And now these are just numbers in isolation. Now, you don't know the long term sequelae of the COVID infection that these patients have had. You know, we've already talked about the significant impact that it's had on day to day lives, the impact that it's had on the global economy. You know, if this is to persist for another five years, six years, whilst you know it satisfies conventional clinical trial uh, requirements just think about how much destruction and devastation it would cause in those five years if we're talking about the levels that is caused in just one so now i suppose this comes back to the idea of what do you determine to be an acceptable risk Let's talk about influenza vaccine quickly. So the influenza vaccine is a vaccine which is made on predictive modeling. So each year 
when you receive the flu vaccine or the influenza vaccine, it's not the same as the year before because, you know, they model it based on predicted strain or which type of influenza or which type of influenza virus strain is going to be more prominent in the population in the community during those winter months. Now, if you were to trial it, you know, in accordance to clinical trials, you'd have to wait six years before releasing the vaccine for the year that you want it. So we've always, we're always going to be in a five-year backlog at a minimum. Now, although the influenza vaccine is not tested in the conventional ways, it's not, you know, tested en masse within 40,000 population of elderly people and so on and so forth every year, the risk that we deem to be acceptable is mitigating that because by not vaccinating, by not giving them the predicted uh, strain or by not providing a vaccine for that winter, the death rate, the hospitalization rate, the complication rate due to influenza would far and above and beyond exceed that of the harm caused by potential side effects to the vaccine. So that's deemed the risk in influenza. Now, in terms of COVID, if we don't take this vaccine at this point in time, and there are other trials, there are other institutions that are working on it, but if we talk about acceptable risk, is the risk of you know, a side effect, which hasn't been proven yet, and by the way, it hasn't been proven yet on a population which is reflective of a phase three clinical trial, you know, 43,000 plus patients, if no side effects have been proven yet, we've got all this death and destruction and damage, why wouldn't we take it? Is the risk of a potential side effect worth not producing this to the population and waiting out a year? Because the risk is we get side effects which we don't know about versus a continually rising infection rate, a continually increasing hospitalization rate, and as we have already seen and has been proven in certain patients uh, or populations or people uh, unfortunately death so for me the way that i look at it an acceptable risk for me is taking a vaccine with a question mark over a consequence which i might see in 30 years versus a guaranteed consequence of not being vaccinated contracting covid potentially ending up with irreversible lung damage or lung changes a potential ITU stint, and of course putting the health of myself and my loved ones at risk. The way I view it, a vaccine could potentially mitigate that, and for me, the risk or that question mark over the vaccine is not so strong and not so severe that would stop me from taking it. So that's kind of my two cents worth on the fear or the safety fears surrounding it. However, those fears or those safety concerns are not solely limited to this trial now when speaking to people and trying to gauge a sense of their positive or negative feelings towards the idea of getting vaccinated either way one of the issues was obviously that of mistrust which is like i mentioned earlier now mistrust comes from historic uh, infamous historic instances within medicine where trials where treatments have gone horribly wrong and i for one can't blame people for being less than enthusiastic and wanting to avoid the idea of vaccinations or 
treatment just in light of some of the things that have happened in the past. So one of these things is called the Tuskegee experiment. So the Tuskegee experiment uh, happened from 1932 and you can argue that the closure of the topic came in 1997 when uh, the president of the united states at the time bill clinton uh, finally apologized to those involved but the ordeal started from 1932 whereby a group of african-american men were recruited at the time uh, for medical trials or what they were told rather was that they were receiving uh, free health care or free treatment uh, from the government in reality, what was happening was that they were being injected with syphilis and the actual trial itself was looking at the effects of untreated syphilis. And for those who know, syphilis can cause a lot, a lot of uh, complications, uh, including that on your central nervous system, on the heart, uh, deafness, blindness, mental illness, uh, a, whole, a whole load of other things as well. The actual termination of the trial happened in 1972 uh, on November the 16th. But in the interim, uh, our good friend Sir Alexander Fleming founded penicillin. Now, penicillin is one of the treatments for uh, syphilis. Even in light of the fact that there was a treatment available, these men that were recruited to this trial were not given that treatment. Now, understandably, when people read that and you're then asking them to put their faith in authority... And you're asking them to put their faith in people who tell you that this is beneficial to you. It was it's, it's only right or it's only reasonable that someone would look at this example and say, you know what, on second thoughts, I don't know, can I trust them? But again, medicine has come a long way since the Tuskegee trial. The Tuskegee trial showed significant deficiencies in the medical ethics process significant deficiencies in the clinical trials process afterwards or as a consequence of the failures and the devastation caused to the african-american community as a result of the tuskegee experiment medicine took stock of itself informed consent became a much bigger uh, factor giving patients enough knowledge uh, to make an informed decision about whether or not they want to partake in a particular trial or they want to have a particular treatment. And another thing as well, probity, honesty, clear-cut communication with everyone involved in a clinical trial uh, or in any consultation uh, format. You know, medicine, the world, America was a very different place in 1932 versus how it is now. And so one would hope that the chances of something similar happening nowadays are slim to none. But arguably even more so than the Tuskegee experiment is the repercussions and the ramifications of the paper published in 1998 by the now struck off Dr. Andrew Wakefield, uh, which was published, the paper was published, which drew a link between the MMR, measles, mumps and rubella vaccine, and supposedly autism and IBS. So what Wakefield was saying in his paper was that kids that were injected with the MMR vaccine would subsequently go on to develop autism uh, and IBS. Now, that paper arguably was what kick-started uh, the whole anti-vaccine movement, or at least brought it to light and gained it the momentum that it needed. 
And this becomes a situation of don't hate the player, hate the game. Now, why do I say this? For many years, doctors of the medical profession were year on year voted as the most trustworthy profession uh, across you know all all professions. Now, when you see that, and when you have that status in society, you also have a duty to live up to the responsibilities that that status gives you. Now, Andrew Wakefield, in publishing that, manipulated and played on the respect and the trust which was placed in the medical profession by the public, used it to his own advantage, and not only did he use it to his own uh, advantage, he used it destructively. What he did in that paper in 1998 set the precedence for why these theories uh, come out now. The vaccination rate in the subsequent years following uh, the Wakefield paper significantly reduced, but apparently has not gone back to the levels required for herd immunity. For reference, the paper was flawed in terms of its scientific methodology. It wasn't a proper trial. It was a few case studies, a few case reports, which relied on parental recall and parental beliefs. So basically, uh, mum or dad turning around and saying to Wakefield that, ah, oh, I think my child experienced this and I think that that might have been because of the vaccine to think is not good enough in science you need to prove you need to have statistics you need to have facts which validate and back up what you say but in terms of the Wakefield paper it was opinion masqueraded as fact in the subsequent years uh, with correct methodology with correct uh, process studies have been carried out which showed absolutely no discernible link between MMR and autism or IBS. I suppose the one thing from the Wakefield uh, saga is that the research and medical uh, communities have been a lot more proactive in combating misinformation. The medical ethics process is a lot more stringent. The scrutinization of research, methodologies and what have you has been a lot more intense. And I suppose that can only benefit populations going forwards. But whether we talk about Andrew Wakefield or whether we talk about the Tuskegee experiment, although medicine has learned its lessons, although the world has learnt from those uh, experiences, it is still hard to forget about them. And I suppose the only way of doing so is by continually trying to build trust in these processes in the future. You know, I don't have the gift of foresight, uh, unfortunately, but for me, and in terms of my own opinion, I think a pragmatic approach is the best one. So an open-minded, pragmatic approach, you can't always put people accountable for the misdemeanors of others, right? So a few bad instances within medicine isn't reflective of the whole medical community, you know? Uh, similarly, if you just look at medicine as all the doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals as one big medical family, even if you took that on a micro level, just look within families, you know, like even siblings aren't the same. So you don't judge one sibling on the actions of another in the same way that you don't judge one uh, doctor or one group of uh, clinicians based on the actions of a different group uh, is what I'm trying to say. But again, I don't have the gift of foresight. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I hope sincerely that 
instances like Tuskegee, instances like, you know, Andrew Wakefield, people like that, they don't make reappearances in the future. That's all I can hope for. Now, kind of the final thing that I wanted to touch on was obviously this fear, and it leads nicely, actually, this whole idea of mistrust, is the fear of the consequences of being vaccinated versus not being vaccinated. Now, it's a very dangerous line to tread because when you start putting conditions or when you start compromising people's abilities to do certain things on the basis of the decisions that they make then and only then do you start violating their autonomy and now autonomy is one of the pillars of medical ethics the idea of respect for autonomy more than anything in the sense that regardless of what decision a patient or a person comes to you have to respect it and and that's true and this is this raises another very important topic in the sense that just because you have a disagreement with someone doesn't necessarily make them wrong however when it comes to vaccines the waters are a little bit more murkier than that so in some uh, countries for example uh, there are certain vaccines which are mandatory or certain countries that imply or impose mandatory rules on on vaccinations brazil being a good example croatia on certain vaccines uh hungary indonesia malta poland serbia and other countries as well you know sometimes they are on more than one vaccine which are mandatory within the population and others you know just some some uh mandate some mandatory vaccines here and there however having said that the idea of compulsory vaccines is one which is very convoluted. It's not one which is for a discussion uh, in isolation or on a one-person podcast. But, you know, certain countries have policies whereby vaccines are mandatory and failure to vaccinate would lead to a compromising ability, to, for example, to go to school, to go to work, to go to certain concerts uh, and so on and so forth. Whether it's right or wrong is not a debate for today, but it is something which exists in other societies. It doesn't exist here in the United Kingdom. So to summarize, where where do we stand? So this COVID-19 vaccine, apparently there are going to be 50 million doses by the end of 2020 and a further 1.3 billion in the year 2021. As far as I'm concerned, I would happily put myself forward at the first instance to get the vaccine. Although I know that there are others who will tread with some you know, hesitancy uh, or point blank refuse at the end of the day i can't force anyone to do something which they don't want to do uh, i can only say from my standpoint this is what i would do so time will tell but hopefully it all will work out for the best right that concludes it for today's episode thank you so much for tuning in hope you found it to be beneficial uh, if anyone does want to talk about a topic in any further detail, just feel free to drop me a follow or drop me a message on Instagram. Happily uh, discuss things in a bit more detail. Otherwise, uh, stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll see you on the next episode.